Good morning and greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. I'm going to ask you this morning who are Christians to do something a little different. If you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to close your eyes. And as you have your eyes closed, I'm going to read a passage. And I want you to think about the message of this passage. And I want you to think about it in the sense of God speaking about you. This is from Hebrews chapter 11, the heroes of faith. These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You can open your eyes. It talked about two countries. And it talked about people who died with a focus on one country. And it was a focus that was so strong that they had opportunity to return to their old country. But because of their faith, they chose to go on and to die in that faith, that expectation of another country. The title of the message this morning is Church and Country. You probably recognize that passage as the passage that we'd been, most of you recognize it as the passage we'd been saying together at the beginning of a lot of my separation and nonconformity messages. This is the last message of that series. And these last two messages are somewhat of a capstone. The one last week was, or not last week, but two weeks ago, I believe, was about money. But it was really about more than that. It was about what we value. What do we value as people? And what does the world value? And how does that come out differently in the way that we handle the things that we possess? It's about our values. Today's message is more about our identity. Christians value different things than the world values. And correspondingly, then they do things differently than the world does them because of that different value system. There's something beneath value as our identity is beneath our values. And our values come out of our identity. I have a little illustration for you here I want you to think about. I'm going to use this, actually, I'm going to use this illustration again in another message, probably in a couple months. But... I think it's I think it's a very real part of the message today and I want to share it from a perspective of the fact that understanding some of these things about identity and being able to think about them and, and ponder them this illustration helps me to think about it and hopefully it will you as well so the inner circle there 
Well, first of all, I would say that this, this circle, the big circle as a whole, can represent both your being, but it can also represent community or your, the group of people in which you, um, you live. And every group, every person, and also every group of people have, at the very core, they have an identity and they have beliefs. And then out of that identity and beliefs come values, things that they value. And because of those values, then they act. And those actions are things that we consider to be normal. So they're norms, they're normal parts of, and they also become customs. And so every person, every family, every community has these things that they consider to be normal, normal modes of acting, normal modes of being, and then also customs that they enact. And so we're coming up on Christmas season in our, our world. Uh, the, the country that we live in particularly has very customary things that they do, and, and all of society right now is, is thriving around these customs. And I'm getting loads and loads of emails in my promotions box for things, for special deals relating to the customs that surround December 25. And so those things we consider to be normal because they're part of our larger part of the larger community part of the society in which we live the structure of the biblical worldview is built on three things the kingdom of god truth and love those three things those th three things constitute the center the identity and beliefs of a biblical worldview. So we could put them in here, kingdom of God as identity, and then beliefs, we could put truth and love in there as, as core central beliefs. The things that we practice as Christian people, all of those things go back to those three things. And... Really, if we were to push that even further, we'd say they go back to one thing, the kingdom of God, and then God himself as the king of that kingdom. But those are the center. For each one of those, the world has a counterpart. The kingdom of this world is the identity. And then there's also lies as opposed to truth and selfishness as opposed to love. And I'm going to talk just a little bit more about them after a while. But in John 18, Jesus admitted that he was a king. But he also said that his kingdom was distinctly different from the kingdom that Pilate was ruling. John 18, 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. This is a two-kingdom reality. 
It's more than a concept. It's not just something that we talk about. It's not just an idea. There is a reality of two kingdoms. There is a kingdom of darkness and there is a kingdom of light. And they exist in the world. I suddenly realized that I missed something. And that is the way that God reveals Himself to us is also important to this whole thing. God reveals Himself in progressive revelation. You can see it in the Old Testament. God revealed Himself by a name early in the Old Testament. And as the Old Testament progresses, God reveals Himself by new names as, as He goes along. Uh, to um, Abraham, he, gave, he, he revealed Himself through a new name when Abraham was offering Isaac on the altar. He revealed Himself in a new name to um, Sarah's maid, Hagar. He revealed Himself in a new name as He brought them out of Egypt. And so God was revealing Himself progressively and God continued to reveal Himself progressively throughout the law. And in Hebrews chapter 1, Verse 2 it says, or verse 1 and 2, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed heir of all things through whom also He made the worlds. Jesus is the final full revelation of who God is. And so we understand the person, we understand who God is and we base our beliefs on the person of Jesus Christ. And we look at the person of Jesus Christ as the means by which we understand what God is saying in this book. So we look at everything that's written in this book through the lens and through the life of Jesus. We look at the epistles through the life of Jesus. We look at the Old Testament through the life of Jesus. And it's very important that we understand that because it's, it's on that understanding of the Scripture that we come to this, these points that I'm talking about. God has in these last days revealed Himself through His Son. And, that, and in that revelation is the two-kingdom reality. Like Rome, which Pilate represented, the nations of this world are part of the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of this world. Jesus makes a, diff a defining difference between those who are part of His kingdom and those who are part of the kingdom of this world. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. He said, if I had the same type of kingdom that you do, Pilate, if I was operating on the same principles that you're operating on, my servants would fight to protect me. But my kingdom's not from here. My kingdom's from a different place. And just like Pilate, world governments are operated by people who are of this world. The focus of the kingdoms of this world is on earthly citizenship allegiance to their government, and control through political means. Earthly citizenship, allegiance to their government, and control through political means. 
And even though these kingdoms are part of the kingdom of this world, God does have a sovereign plan for those kingdoms and the function of those kingdoms. But it's very interesting to me, I have a friend whose wife was born in another country and she just received U.S. citizenship. And I messaged him this morning and I said, I use my birth certificate as an official document to prove my U.S. citizenship. What did your wife get? What does she use? Because she can't use her birth certificate because that's from another country. And she has a certificate of citizenship. But to get that certificate of citizenship, she had to swear an oath of allegiance to the country of the United States. Now, I didn't get into the particulars about what it meant to swear an oath of allegiance to the country of the United States. But that's how important citizenship is to the kingdoms of this world. You cannot become a citizen of the kingdom of one of the kingdoms of this world without swearing an oath of allegiance unless you were born in the country. If you're not born in the country, you have to swear an oath of allegiance to become part of it. And you have to have a special document that identifies you as an official citizen of that country. Otherwise, you are not a citizen. If you lose that document and you're not on record, you will not be able to be be considered and have the privileges of, of a citizen of the country. We can tell by the way that Paul handled his Roman citizenship that citizen, Roman citizenship in the days of the New Testament was an extremely important thing to the kingdom of Rome. Nobody that was a Roman citizen was crucified. The only way they executed was through beheading for Roman citizens. That's why Paul was beheaded. Citizenship to earthly governments is very important. By default of our identity as sons and daughters of Adam, we're born into the kingdom of this world. And our self-centered identity drives our lives. And we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so all unbelievers are part of the kingdom of this world. So we have world governments, world countries, countries who set up government who are part of the kingdom of this world. We have individuals who are not believers who are part of the kingdom of this world. Embedded in the teachings of Christ is a message that his followers must give their allegiance completely to Christ and to his kingdom to be his disciple, to be his follower, to be part of his kingdom. I'll give you a reference for that if you want it. Luke 14, 25 to 35. I'm not going to read that passage. But Jesus is very clear that the nothing less than complete allegiance to his kingdom is sufficient to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And through repentance and the coming of the Spirit into our hearts, we're born into the kingdom of God. And when that happens, our citizenship is moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Colossians 1.13 Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Another way to say that last part, that word translated means carried away. And hath carried us away into the kingdom of His dear Son. Philippians 3.20 says that our conversation is in heaven 
And the Greek word used there for conversation is citizenship. A lot of other places the word conversation is translated from a word that means um, lifestyle or mode of living. But the one there means citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. Believers are citizens of God's kingdom and that is their primary citizenship. So if we truly believe that God is at the center of all things, then our beliefs and our identity, if if we believe that that is our identity, it truly is your identity to be a child of God, and that God is at the head, at the center of all things, and and the core of what it means to, to believe and to live, then the Christian's core center of function will be the same as the kingdom of God. So we will have for our identity, Christ and his kingdom, and we will have for our beliefs, truth and love. They will be the core of who we are. And the church is the assembly of those who have had their citizenship translated into the kingdom of God. And it's distinctly separate from the kingdoms of this world. Just like Jesus said that his disciples were part of another kingdom. So I gave you several things. Kingdom of God. So at the, at the center, at the center of all things that are part of the kingdom of God is this core foundation. At the center of all things that are part of the kingdom of this world, this is the core of the foundation. And you might say, and, and I thought about this, and I thought, well, probably the biggest argument that you'll have with that is that, that lies are part of the center of the foundation of, say, world governments or whatever. But here's probably one of the primary ways that that's true. World gover- governments operate as if the physical realm is the most important thing. Is that the truth? That's not the truth. The truth is that the spiritual realm is the most important thing. And so there's a a foundational lie at the core of that function. And we believe that it is better to give our life than to lie. So it is better for us to be part of this within than to be this within. So the New Testament talks about these two distinctly different entities, the church and the nations of this world. So my question is, and and this is what I hope to aim towards as we go through the rest of this message, how do we as Christians fit into these two entities? How How do we operate here in the world where both of these entities exist And how should we view and understand them from a biblical perspective? Well, first of all, the Bible tells us about two worlds. In 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 7, I will read verses 7, 9, and 12. But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. So there in verse 7, we have the heavens and earth that exist now. 
And then 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so the judgment that God's reserving this earth for, some people say isn't going to happen, but God is, it's, it's not that God's not going to fulfill His promise. He has another something that He is, he is wanting to do. He's long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish. His desire is that all would come to repentance. He wants everyone to become part of His kingdom. And then verse 12, But we, according to His promise, and that's in the previous verse, looking for and hastening to the coming day of God, because in which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we... Oh, sorry, it's in this verse. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we're looking forward. We, meaning speaking to Christian people, are looking forward to a time when there's going to be, when this earth is going to be going, and there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And that heaven and earth is going to be ruled by righteousness. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we believe is going to happen in the future. Now, when I was reading those verses from Hebrews chapter 11, I was t- it was talking about men who died in faith looking forward to the kingdom of God coming. And the question is, do you believe that the kingdom of God is going to come one day and we're going to live in a place, we're going to live in a world where righteousness dwells? And are you willing to live in such a way that you promote righteousness regardless of what happens here? Because what you're living for is not what's here, but what's out there wherein righteousness dwells. It's ruled by righteousness. You see, the problem with this world is that it's marred by sin. And God's plan is that He's going to remove this world because it's marred by sin. And the governments that are in place today are not in place to restore righteousness to this world. The goal of the governments of our the government of our country and the governments of other countries in the world God's plan for them is not that they would restore righteousness. He has another plan for them. So why why doesn't God just go ahead and destroy this world? Well, the answer is because God has a desire there in, I already mentioned it in, in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, that it's God's desire, God's ultimate desire is that all people would be reconciled to Himself. That's His ultimate desire. So we have His plan unfolded before us. The earth is going to be burned up. But ultimately, God is longing for every person on this planet to be reconciled to Him. But God's goal isn't to fix this present world. But it is to fix the lives of men in this present world to prepare them for the next world. So what is the relationship between God and world government? Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Sorry, Romans chapter 13. I'm going to go ahead and read this passage. Beginning at verse 1. 
Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror of good works, but to evil. Do you want to be afraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him that practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually on this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. I don't want to spend a lot of time on verse 8, but I want to point something out to you, and that is that in that verse it says that our we are be, we should be beholden to no one, or we should our responsibility to other people would be another way to put it. Our responsibility to other people is to love them. Don't owe people money. Don't be beholden to them on anything other than to love them. You are responsible to love them because that is the fulfillment of the law. And Romans 8.4 tells us that the righteousness of the law is to be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And so if we are to fulfill the righteousness of the law, our debt is to love others and you see that's a core value there's something else we need to notice about this passage and it is that it's a continuation of what in Romans 12 1 and 2 begin as a challenge to us as an encouragement to us to not be conformed to the world but be be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And then Paul goes into about three and a half chapters of exhortation on how that is practically lived out. And in this passage, he is explaining to us how we practically relate to world government. So he's expressing this to Christians as a practical way for Christians to live in relation to the governments of this world. In verse 1, These governments are appointed by God. God puts government authorities in place. The authorities that exist are appointed by God in verse 1. And they have authority on the basis of that appointment by God. And we know, if we look back at the Old Testament, you can see that God sometimes set up men, and especially men like Pharaoh, God set him up to evidence his power in the world. God put Pharaoh in place. Pharaoh was the man who killed babies. And yet God put him in place. God brought forth his power upon Pharaoh, expressed his power through Pharaoh. But God was the one who set him up in power. In verse 6, we see that they are God's servants. It says, ministers. 
For they are God's ministers, and that, that word there means servants, attending continually to this very thing. So they have a they have a service that they are rendering to God by doing what's previous to that verse. Verse 4, For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him that practices evil. He is God's servant to execute judgment on people who practice evil things. So the, the government is set up by God for the purpose of restraining evil in the world. God brings about the things, the times, he orchestrates in, in the circumstances of our world to bring about the government situations and leaders that he wants to be in place. So what is the purpose? I already got into that just a little bit. I want to talk just a little bit about the purpose yet. I want you to also notice... He is, he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him that practices evil. So when Paul writes about this, he always writes about it in the sense of writing about the third person. Paul is writing to, to you as a believer, and he's saying that this is the way that you are to view him. He is this. He is this. The government is separate from you. He is a separate acting body from you, the church. And he is an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. We're not given that instruction. We're not given the instruction to execute wrath on him that practices evil. That's not our job. It's not our responsibility as, as believers. He is placed there for your benefit. See that in verse 4 also. For He is God's minister to you for good. He is doing something good for you by restraining evil in the world. He is doing something good for you. And we see that being played out in some of the Old Testament stories. One of the reasons why I brought up the difference between of the progressive revelation is because we don't look at the Old Testament Israel model as the way in which we understand the church. And I know most of you are aware of that. But the, the New Testament model is different from the Old Testament model. It's a new covenant. It's a new commitment between God and His people. It's a new establishment. And that new establishment does not include world government with the people of God. The government, the last thing I want you to notice about the purpose of the government is that he is not your servant to do your will. He is God's servant to do God's will. And God's will for this present world is that circumstances and things will come about to bring about purposes 
towards the end of the age. God is orchestrating the end, the end game, if you will, of the world, the end results. And the government is being used as part of that system. And we pray for them. 1 Timothy 2 2. For kings and all are in, who are in authority, that they may that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. Again, separation of, of us from the ruling authorities. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of a God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, we have the desire of God that all would come to the knowledge of saving faith. So why, what is the church? Why did God establish the church? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Now therefore you no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Do you hear that citizenship ring? You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are right in the house of the kingdom of God. You're part of the kingdom of God now. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So you are being built, the church is being built into a place where God can dwell. It's more the symbolism of the temple than the nation of Israel. 1 Peter 2, 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. So you are a special people. Again, this whole identity thing, you are a special separate people that you can show the difference between who you were before in the kingdom of darkness and who you now are in the kingdom of light. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous of good works. So a people whose desire is to do good. Not people who are compelled to do good, but people who desire to do what is good. Zealous of good works. So what's the purpose of the church? Well, the purpose of the church is that it would be an embassy of love in a world that is broken by the consequences of sin. And God wants to restore. And He is using the church in His restoration plan for a new creation. Amen. We are the beginning of the new creation. And through us, God wants to reconcile the world to Himself. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So we as the church have been given a purpose and that purpose is the ministry of reconciliation, the service of reconciliation, not the restriction of evil, but rather the reconciliation of human beings to God. And then he goes on to explain what that is in verse 19. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. 
Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God wants us, the church, to be a, a place of reconciliation between the world and God. And we are here as ambassadors. And so the way we understand our identity is to understand that we are part of the kingdom of God. And that as part of the kingdom of God, we are ambassadors to all of those who have not become part of God's kingdom and not been reconciled to Him. The great commission of the church that Jesus gave just before He he left to make more disciples and to teach them the commands of Christ. God has given us a powerful, powerful mission. And God has given us something that we can put our lives into as the most profitable, most powerful way that we can change the world possible. The Roman Empire crumpled as the kingdom of Jesus Christ rose into prominence in the world. And the way that that happened was through people serving and serving and serving and dying and dying and dying at the hands of ungodly people. And it changed the world in 300 years. God has given the church and the government two distinctly different missions to fulfill. One to suppress evil the other to reconcile the world to God. And we must clearly see both aspects of this twofold plan of God. His church and the new world, the role of world government and this present world. We have to see that distinction clearly. We have to understand our identity to be able to do that. And that's where Luther failed in one sense because his identity the the his understanding of salvation was not transformational it was covering and we have to understand salvation as transformational because that's what the new testament teaches there's one other aspect that i want to bring out of this The government is to suppress evil through legalistic force. The church uses the force of love. The same way that Jesus, the same force that Jesus came with. Jesus didn't come with a sword. Jesus didn't come with force. Jesus didn't come with coercion. Jesus came with love. And through that love, He empowered people to live for Him. What's the difference between the sword and love? The force of the sword is external. It's legal. That was, that's the term that's used there in Romans 13 is the sword. It's a force that puts pressure on the outside. The reason why an ungodly person obeys the law is not because they have a conscience to obey the law, but rather because they're afraid of the consequences that are going to happen if they don't. And so the only reason that they curb their selfishness is because they are 
afraid of what's going to happen if they don't. They have fear of this external force. They are not the ones who who apply this force. And that's the force, the only force that the government has to use. That force is not transformational. That force is simply restrictive. It does nothing to penetrate to the heart where the real core of what of, of actions comes out of the, the, the being. Love, on the other hand, is a force that reaches to the heart and changes the heart of men. And so the only way for change to really happen in the world is for hearts to be changed. You can put a lot of, you can put however much legal force onto a group of people that you want to, and you might curb the actions of those people, but you will not change the beliefs. The only way that you can change the beliefs is to find a way into the core of their being and help them to see the light. And that's our job. That's the difference between our job and theirs. Our job is not to apply pressure, outward pressure to people. Our job is to to reach to the heart of people and show them the love of Christ. And by doing that, engage them in a new way to look at the world through a revelation of who Jesus is. The powerful part to me about this whole thing is that God has made the church us, builders with Him and what's eternal. The only thing that's going to go into eternity is what is saved by Jesus Christ. And we have the gift, the opportunity of being part of that building process. The temporary part, the part of this world we leave in His control because He said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples. He has all the power in the world. He can orchestrate the end times. He doesn't need our help. But He has a job for you and for me. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Jesus was asked a very challenging question about the relationship between those who follow God and the government. And he made a very revolutionary statement. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What things are Caesar's? Well, we're to pay him. We're to pay our taxes. We're to pay our dues. We're to pay our customs. All forms of payment to him we're to honor and obey him honor and obey him because he's placed in his position by God not because he's godly particularly but because he's placed there by God we pray for him because he's fulfilling a piece of God's plan Uh, we pay him because he's fulfilling a piece of God's plan we pray for him because he holds a position that affects the lives of many including ours. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. To God, the things that are God's. What are God's things? Your life is God's. Render your life to Him. Your citizenship and allegiance are His. Give your allegiance and your citizenship, your identity to Him. 
Your work is for His eternal plan. And He is equipping you to do the job. Therefore, when they had come together, this was after the resurrection, they said to Him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in His own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. May God be with us as we fulfill our mission as His church. God bless you.